The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. We've got a uh, fresh bag of questions here. We're opening up with, uh, I'm sure, a Social Security question to start. I'll leave those specific questions to Jim, although he did give me the heads up on one question. Uh, this was one of the Social Security questions we're going to cover today, only because it had some numbers in it and some ages that required a little bit of... Uh, uh, preparation and thinking, I guess, could be a little calculator work. So uh, usually I get the questions uh, cold for the most part, but uh, uh, we did do a little preemptive figuring on these to answer the one question. So I, I don't know when that's going to come up, but that particular question I am prepared you for weren't, at this point. You weren't supposed to tell them, and then when you factored it in your head and figured it out instantly, you were going to look brilliant. That was going to seem way too impressive. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> this Social Security question did require a calculation, so I sent it to Chris ahead of time. Uh, as as listeners will know, he Chris uh, generally, God bless him, he has no idea what's coming at him. Uh, only I do, and literally, usually just minutes before do I actually look at the question and, and try answering it. Um, so, anyways, it's kind of the the style of our podcast. It, it either lends itself to an interesting discussion or to a painful discussion. We, we never know what we're getting ourselves into uh, on the show. Okay. Uh, will you finish with the intro? I'll let you continue. Yeah. No, I think we're ready to dive when, in. When, when is this playing? Because uh, I, I get so confused now. We're recording so many in advance important? of your, your world travels. Well, I want to wish people a happy something. Well, I don't think is it August. By, is it August by time this plays? This is going to play on no. This, no. this should be playing on July 29th, I believe. Okay, so it's close to August. Okay. All right. I'm only asking folks so I know where we are, and we mention this repeatedly. If something major has happened between July 18th, the day we're recording this at three in the afternoon, and when it finally plays at the end of July. And we didn't talk about it. It's because we're recording it weeks in advance, which we don't normally do. We normally record these podcasts a day or two uh, before they play. But Chris is out uh, going on a, a trip with mom, right? A, a bucket list trip that she yep. wanted to so do. We'll all be out for a couple of weeks, and we didn't want to disrupt the regular podcast schedule. So we're going out of our way to get a few built up in the queue, if you will. Yeah, I think listeners will will uh, appreciate our efforts. Okay, this is the Q&A show, folks, so it's where you ask the, a, uh, the Qs, and uh, we give the A's, or at least we, we try to give the A's as best we can. And we always start with Social Security questions, and I'm trying to pull up the two Social Security questions I want to ask. Do you want me to uh, ask the one that you had to calculate first, or one that totally you have no idea you. what's coming? Totally up to you. All right. I'll I'll do a different one first okay. and see if you might be able to. I don't think there's 
going to be enough information in this for you to answer, but you might be able to give some generalizations to them of, of what might be happening okay. with um, disabled child benefits. Okay, they are from, I see, well, no hint. Most likely because they submitted this through the website, helpofmysocialsecurity.com, where we should probably ask, give us a hint about the state <laughs> you're writing from before submitting uh, your question. But we don't ask that. So they are from a state that I would have never imagined would be called the Garden State. Well, we've done that one recently. That, of right. course, is New, New Jersey. Jersey. Mm -hmm. New Jersey. Yeah, I never recognized. Uh, anyways, but apparently it's really good to God in there. Okay. My husband is 62 and receiving Social Security retirement benefits. We got married in May of 2022. My husband had a disabled daughter who lives with us full time and I became her, her caregiver. Our daughter recently was approved to receive benefits as a disabled adult based on his record. I, I believe he means, she means the husband's record. Mm -hmm. I recently applied for the child and care benefits and was denied. Is there an income limit? I make 15000 a year paid by the state to care for my stepdaughter, which is considered under IRS regulations as difficulty of care payments. Hmm. Okay, and that's the question, essentially? That's the question. She's okay. wondering why she was denied. I, I have an idea why, but I have no idea if I'm right. I'm wondering mm -hmm. if the child uh, became disabled uh, at the wrong age, but could I have a, no idea. Could be a couple of things. Um, first of all, uh, let's talk about is there an income limit? There's no income limit per se. You're, you, you can become entitled to benefits where the income comes in as if you are subject to the earnings test, which if you are receiving benefits at any time, uh, these are uh, retirement benefits, spousal benefits, survivor benefits, not um, necessarily other types of support benefits, but those those core benefits from Social Security prior to your full retirement age, you're subject to the earnings test, which in 2023 uh, starts to kick in if you've got income over about $20,000 per year, which wouldn't apply to her. But that wouldn't cause a, a rejection or a denial of the, of the claim. That would just apply and they would say, well, congratulations. Yes, well, you're entitled to this, but we're not going to give you anything because you uh, are you know, offset completely by the earnings test. That's not what's appeared to have happened in this case. She's, she said she was just outright denied. So there's no income limit there. But the requirements for child and care, um, and as I was talking, I just pulled up just to, to read it verbatim from Social Security. Um, You've got to be, uh, the, the child it's themselves has to be entitled to a child's insurance benefit, which you say that they are, right? This disabled child, which is above the normal age for child benefits. That child benefit uh, typically stops when the child reaches 18 or reaches 19 if they're still in high school, uh, but extends to older ages if the child is disabled, which appears to be the case uh, for you, and that's why the child has benefits on your husband's record. Uh, they have to uh, meet the conditions for entitlement, uh, which are you know kind of basic um, uh, benefits. The child must be entitled to earn you know on one of the earnings record of the of the parents that we're talking about here. Here is there's the father meet the relationship requirements to be considered a child um, of the number holder, that all makes sense, and be either under age 16 or be disabled. And this is for the, not their own benefit. I mentioned that was, you know, a benefit they could receive up until they were 18 or 19. This is child in care benefits, which flow to a spouse uh, in, instead of to the child directly. And the normal requirement is they're under age 8, eight 16, which happens quite frequently where we have someone who has young children and was old enough, though, to claim Social Security. And they're married to someone who's caring for that child and the child in care kicks in at that point um, or be disabled. 
and I'm reading right off the IRS uh, instructions here, right out of the POMS, right? The Program Operations Manual, which is the, the, the go-to source for all things Social Security. While hard to read and interpret, it's, it is the Bible, per se, of the Social Security rules and regulations. And uh, what it does not say is that the disability has to have happened prior to a certain age, which is what I first thought when I heard, you know, daughter became disabled. So there's another little extra twist here. When the child is not your natural child, said that you married into this, so this is your stepchild, uh, you have to be married for a year before those child and care benefits could flow to you. So maybe it was just a timing thing. I'm just guessing here that you said you were just married in May of 2022, which is just a little over a year ago at this point. And you didn't indicate when you applied. You have to be in time. You know, it has to be valid when you applied. Uh, You might just have to apply again now that you've been married for at least a year, if that were the case. What I would recommend in your case in particular, ask them for an explanation. They'll be able to tell you why you were denied. You don't just get a blanket denial and, and you just have to guess as to what that is. They have an obligation to explain it to you if you ask. So you need to ask why you were denied and see if it's a legitimate reason. If it's not legitimate, then I would uh, appeal that and, and you know uh, send it up the administrative ladder, if you will, first asking for a um, uh, manager-type position in the office that you're dealing with or a um, subject matter expert that they'll have in those offices and get a clarification on that and, and go through whatever appeal is appropriate if, if it if when they give you the reasoning behind the denial, it doesn't seem appropriate in your case. Or That's my guess. So um, there's there's got to be a little nuance in there. There's It could be just a flat-out mistake, which is when you request a reason, they'll look at it again, and if it was a mistake, they'll, they'll admit it and they'll deal with it. But if they're hanging their hat on a specific technicality or something, they'll name it, and then you can figure out if it actually does apply to you or not and go from there. That's what I would recommend in this case. But those child and care benefits, essentially what they're meant for is to provide extra benefits for a caregiver of your child when it is a a spouse, right, that's taking care of your child, that the thought process uh, is that if they're taking care of the child, they can't work as much because they have this obligation to care for your child. Uh, You're not working because you've claimed Social Security benefits, so they have this extra benefit that essentially pays a sp- an early spousal benefit to your spouse while they're caring for this qualifying child. Um, most of the time, it's dealing with young children up to the age of 16, but uh, can't apply beyond that when the child is disabled, which appears to be uh, potentially the case in, in this instance. So I, I'm guessing it's a timing issue of some element of what's happened when the child was deemed disabled or when how long you'd been married and when you filed and all that maybe there was just a timing issue that's my guess but uh ask for a a reason if they give you some reason that we're not mentioning here i'd love to hear about it so follow-up is is great in these cases whenever i ask people to go seek out an explanation from social security i'd love to hear their answer you know the social security response to that Uh, because every once in a while we learn something new, you know, maybe there's some little special clause somewhere, some little extra trigger that, that, uh, we're not uh, understanding in this case. So, uh, hopefully that helps out a little bit. I think it will. I think it did a good job for not having enough information to, to give her some direction. So hopefully she'll appreciate that. All right. Second social security question, folks. This listener did not give a hint, but he does say, uh, hi, Jim and Chris. I really enjoy the podcast. I've learned a bunch from it. Wish I started listening sooner. I'm originally from Connecticut. And he says he gets a kick out of hearing your Massachusetts accent. I think he's talking about you. Mm, He says, yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm sure. Uh, He says, I am currently from the Rocky Mountain state. Same as both of you. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if that's his hint. If it is, he's in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the easiest hints I've seen. But anyways, he continues. I need to understand a bit about the spousal benefit. I am age 66. My wife is 10 years older than me and started collecting her Social Security at 62. She was the lower wage earner. 
she receives $1,577 monthly. My estimated benefit at my full retirement age in September is $3,060. It will be $4,030 if I wait to 70. My question is, if I wait until 70, how much would the spousal benefit add to my wife's current benefit? Would she receive an additional amount to bring her benefit up to match half of mine? I hope I have stated this question clearly. Thank you in advance for the response and keep up the good work in keeping us informed on all financial things regarding retirement. Okay, so this one, the reason why I had to do a little figuring is just seeing if there was any nuance to this with the big age difference and her having collected for a while. But the the the, the basic situation here, I need to remind people how spousal benefits work because that will kind of reveal the answer to this question. And that is when you have claimed your benefit, your spouse is eligible to receive a benefit on your record that is up to one half of your PIA, primary insurance amount. That primary insurance amount is the benefit that you receive at your full retirement age. So he revealed that his PIA is $3,060. So she then uh, is currently receiving fifteen seventy-seven, but that's the result of an age 62 claiming 14 years ago. So he said he's 66. She's 10 years older, so she's 76, claimed all the way back when she was 62 as about 14 years ago. So in 2009, sounds like, she claimed her benefit. Uh, it's now been, it was much smaller then because there's been about 36% uh, cumulative cost of living adjustment inflation on Social Security benefits since then. So she's had some inflation adjustments to that benefit since then, getting her to currently 1577 The challenge is um, her um, spousal benefit is going to be maxed out at half of his PIA. He mentioned 3060, we'll call it $3000, that's $1500. Even if he delays to 70, it does not change her spousal benefit. This is the key factor here. He's he's clearly thinking that if he delays there's some benefit to her. There is a benefit to her but only after he passes away. While he's living and the spousal benefit is in play, it's all based on half of his PIA, that 3060. So her potential spousal benefit is only $1,500. She's receiving more than that on her own. Her own benefit was, and, and even the reduced age 62 benefit is bigger than that. So her own PIA right now, her adjusted PIA at this point is 2103. That's what they would compare it against. Half of his benefit would be have, have to be bigger than her current, what I call the adjusted PIA. Her current PIA is 2103. How do I get that? I back out the reduction for her claiming at 62, figuring out what she would, what she'd be collecting right now if she'd claimed at her full retirement age. It's only if there's a bonus there to the spouse does a spousal benefit get paid. In this case, there is really no spousal benefit available to her. So um, now where the benefit would come in and waiting to 70, which is when we talk about people considering waiting to 70, the higher wage earner, is that uh, if he were to pass away, actually if either one passes away, the survivor will only keep the higher benefit. And that higher benefit would be his age 70 benefit if he did in fact delay to 70. So there is a, a benefit to whoever lasts the longest might be him or her. Uh, you know, statistically with the age difference, there might be kind of totally a, you know, a coin flip up in the air as, as to who is expected. We never know for sure, but there's, you know, who's expected to outlive the other. Um, we don't know. We don't know who's going to last the longest, but whoever it is, if he gets to 70, he will leave behind for himself if he's the survivor or for her if she's the survivor, his 4,030 benefit, uh, which is definitely more attractive than the 3060. If he claims at, th at full retirement age, he'll cap out the, the survivor benefit at that amount, the 3060. So... They should take that into consideration in their planning. I don't know the rest of their story, whether the survivor benefit is particularly important to them or not. 
But if they're trying to protect as much as possible for the survivor, there's still a reason to consider going to age 70, even though it's not going to help her currently in the spousal benefit category while the two of them are alive. Her benefit is big enough to be bigger than half of his. So she just doesn't, isn't, based on what he's sharing, I wouldn't expect her to get anything. Okay, fair enough. I think you answered that question quite well. Uh, Thank you. Hopefully they'll find it beneficial. He didn't say where in Colorado he is, but uh, hopefully he is enjoying this nice hot weather that we have been having. Supposed to continue hot all next week as well. But I'm so getting so fed up with it because people are acting like summers are not hot. Now, I, I, I always complain about heat, folks, so it doesn't matter. Even in wintertime, if it's still hot, I'm complaining. But, um, God, so many people are complaining that summers are hot. It is uh, definitely hot this week here, and I'm not trying to sound like a broken record, but he didn't say where he was. Maybe he's up in Carbondale or something where it's nice and cool. All right, so we have next, Chris, we're going to try to kill two birds with one stone. How's that? Sounds good. It is annuity questions, but both of these uh, both came in on Monday, and both kind of talk about the same thing. I'll concede one was actually sent to me a while ago, and she thought I would address it on the annuity show, and I never did. So she resent it, and she sent it on Monday. And then the other gentleman wrote on Monday, and I thought we could nail the new question of the week and the annuity question hmm. in one. Nice. And, 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 and solve two and at the same time. Two at the same time. This is like the trifecta. I mean, this is we're covering all bases here. Uh, we have a lot of annuity questions, and I'm trying to do one per Q and A show, and we also like to do one new question of the week. So we're going to nail it all here. Okay, so we'll start with the longer of the two, but they are both related. Uh, she begins, "Hi Jim and Chris. My name is," and she gives it, but I won't mention it. She says, "But a little twist on what you usually do. Please call me Georgina." So we'll call her Georgina instead of Georgette. Okay. She said, Jim, my dad is from Dorchester, so I love listening to you go down your rabbit holes. I feel like you're, I'm learning from a member of my own family. In fact, I'd say your accent is most like my Uncle Eddie. So I guess I'm Uncle Eddie. <laughs> But uh, thank you. Dorchester is uh, up near Boston for sure. And uh, I suppose Uncle Eddie uh, talks a little bit like me or I talk a little bit like Uncle Eddie. I, I think I think the, the, the funniest, though, I have to mention it again because they got a couple of new ones out. Are those Sam Adams commercials with your cousin from Boston? Trust me, people. Watch those commercials because there really are guys like that. Growing up back home. They are definitely, definitely like that. Okay. She said, I started listening to your show for the past year and I love it. I've listened to everything on the Apple podcast program, which is, by the way, limited to just 100 episodes. I did not know that. Limited to 100 episodes. Did you know they only keep the latest mm. 100? I mean, not that it matters. That's two plus years worth. No, I, did not, I did not know that. You can always oh, go actually, to the, directly to the website and get a little older than that. Yeah, but actually, because we do two a week, that's only about a year's worth of podcasts uh, on Apple. I didn't know that. Anyways, she said, I listen and read a lot about retirement, and no one talks about things the way you do, and it's revolutionized my thinking about retirement. I always heard and thought about passive income, quote unquote, passive income, but no one has ever addressed the idea of making sure you have enough quote-unquote, secure income to cover your basic expenses, what we call the minimum dignity for folks, food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care expenses. And no one is talking about compartmentalizing. Thank you for breaking out into pools the funds depending on when it's needed. needed. I speak fluent, Jim, so... <laughs> That's a tough word. I'm looking at that thing. I carpentum car, 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 car. Say it again. Compartmentalizing. That's where I'm losing it. Compartment. Car, 
Oh, for Christ's sake, okay. move on. Everyone knows. No, forget it, forget it, forget it, Putting forget it. That little, is it. Little bucket. She, she's from Dorchester. She should know not to put that damn word in here. <laughs> okay. I own, oh, I'm going to skip all that. That has nothing to do. She gets into a lot about this. She now jumps down. But before she goes in, it's important if you're a new listener, you understand the concept she just mentioned. She's saying, hey, I've been kind of paying attention to this. She is close to, to time. She owns her own business, folks. And um, her spouse is 10 years older than she is. And um, she is very involved. Her spouse is not that involved, but our listener is very involved in the finances. And she's trying to plan their eventual retirement. She, the, the Georgina, if you will, uh, is self-employed and she's currently working. I don't know exactly when she's going to retire, but she started crunching some numbers based on our approach to retirement planning, folks. And this ties into the next question we're going to get to. She crunches the numbers and she says, hey, I've identified my, she called them basic expenses, but Chris and I call them minimum dignity floor, food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare. I've compared it to the secure income that I know I'm going to have. And she says, beyond a doubt, Chris, at age 70, she is going to need additional secure income. She's not going to have enough. But her calculations also show she's going to need more secure income throughout her retirement. Mm -hmm. And she feels she may need to buy more in the future. And here's how her question kind of ties in, because her current spouse, she's not very involved in the situation. So she continues. You often talk about setting money aside for the older you to decide if they need an annuity. But you also talk about the potential for cognitive decline as you get older. And even if you don't have an Alzheimer's ridded family like I do, if our ability to decide money matters declines, how is the 78 to 83-year-old me, when I think I will need more income, supposed to know or even remember if they need an annuity? And how can I make sure I'm not taking advantage of. In my case, maybe this is easier because I've done the calculations. I know I will need an annuity at 70 and I know I'll need another one later. She does ask a few good questions. She gets into a little bit about an annuity she owns now. I don't want to get uh, deep into that. Her main question that she's trying to account for here, folks, her spouse is not very involved in this. She comes from a family that is known to have Alzheimer's. She needs an annuity at 70 and seems willing to at least put the money aside and let the 70-year-old her decide if they should buy it. And she's leaning towards buying an annuity to help cover food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare expenses. But what about the latter-in-life annuity? Because we often encourage people not to make an irrevocable decision today and buy an annuity that's going to pay her, let's say, age 80, somewhere between 78 and 83, uh, let's just say 80. And that ties in to the other question we also got on Monday. Okay. I like his state trivia question, but I don't want to get to it. I'll get to it later. I want to keep the momentum going. While I, and this is a gentleman, uh, a man, but we're going to call him George. Totally different question, folks, but similar. While I wholeheartedly agree with your retirement philosophy, I feel there are two pieces of advice that you can, that you give that conflict mm -hmm. with each other. Oh, did you get this email? No, I just you said it's like the other one, and it, it, I I'm in I will agree with both of them that we don't mention the mitigation of their concern as often as we probably should because we talk about cognitive decline so frequently. I think 
there people are probably waiting. Well, when are they going to mention how to deal with that in this scenario if we're waiting and we yep. we don't mention it enough? It's been mentioned, but just not nearly frequently enough. Right. So he continues. Here's my conundrum. On the one hand, you often say we should defer buying a stream of income through an annuity until which time it is needed. And instead, let the older you decide whether or not to go ahead with that annuity purchase. But on the other hand, number two, you often talk about how our ability to make financial decisions may degrade considerably with age, but our confidence does not. What he's referencing there, new listeners, is something that Chris and I talk about constantly. And we see it constantly in our practice. That's why we talk about it. People begin to lose interest in financial matters, following the market, managing portfolios. Some just lose interest because they're aging and they realize it's just not interesting to them anymore. It's a lot more fun when you're accumulating assets, folks. You're not debiting from it. It's not as fun when you're spending from it. It just isn't. You got other things you want to do. But we also share with you, your ability to understand financial concepts begins to degrade. We talk often about one of the seminal studies in our industry on this, came from Harvard University, and they said the part of our brain that understands financial concepts begins to degrade at age 53. It's not a cliff. Thankfully, uh, everyone or most people listening to this podcast would not be do-it-yourself or VGs anymore. Chris and I would still be doing the podcast, but we would be going because we wouldn't understand financial concepts anymore. We're both over 53. So it's not a cliff, but it is at least bringing to our attention. Both Chris and I are not naive. We know 10, 15, 20 years from now, we're not going to be as sharp as we are. The juniors in the office and the new juniors that we will hire over the next X number of years before Chris and I ourselves retire, those new juniors will be far more capable than we will as we age. They're going to still be improving, especially uh, if, if we uh, start working with people. I mean, our juniors are all younger than us, but they're also younger than 53, they're still not even at their peak understanding. And I truly do feel when I went to BU starting in my mid-30s, I know a hell of a lot more now than I ever did in my mid-30s. But I also know 20 years from now, I'm going to know a lot less than I do now. I'm just not going to be as sharp. And this gentleman is picking up on it. And he's saying, you often talk about our ability to make financial decisions tend to degrade considerably. And he continues, like the other listener, I have a family history of dementia. I worry if I defer an annuity purchase too long, I may forget why I was even saving that lump sum of money to begin with. Or with the overconfidence that Chris often mentioned, Chris, you often mention that overconfidence. Why don't you talk about that study? I forgot to mention it. See, I'm already losing my mind. I forgot to mention <laughs> yeah, the there was a follow overconfidence. On, yeah, there was a follow-on study at Texas Tech that after the Harvard study that showed probably, I think, a more disturbing element even than just the cognitive decline, which wasn't a surprise as people age, you know, that there was just a formal study to, to reveal this, uh, what we all kind of knew by common sense. But um, uh the Texas Tech study looked at your confidence in making decisions does not decline. So essentially that means your your abilities have eroded, but you don't realize it. And that's why so many uh, you know folks as they age become victims of financial fraud is they just don't have, they think that they're fine and they'll, they'll pick up on things and, oh, they can't be taken advantage of me. I know, you know, I know how to understand all this kind of stuff. Um, and that overconfidence gets them into trouble. So, uh, that's that's the overconfidence thing that we talk about. Okay. So he continues, for me with a family history of dementia, I worry that I, if I defer an annuity purchase too long, I may forget why I was saving that lump sum of money. Or with the overconfidence of an elderly person, I might feel like I don't need it when in fact I really do. 
I think the right answer for me lies somewhere in between. Maybe I should buy a deferred annuity at some point in the future before my mental degradation fully kicks in. Maybe I should look to buy one somewhere in my 70s. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic. And then, of course, he leaves his name. We will call him George. Um, Both of them make very, very good points. Mm -hmm. And we have spoken about this. There is the shameless shout-out answer that I'll give. But then there's the do-it-yourself answer that you guys can consider. The shameless shout-out answer that I'll give is, at some point in your life, you do-it-yourselfers, you may need help. And it's not a shameless shout-out to hire Chris and I. As longtime listeners know, we haven't accepted new retirement planning clients in quite some time, and over a year. We, we will be shortly, but we'll let everybody know when that time comes. So it's not a shout-out to hire Chris and I. There's many financial planning firms out there. But at some point, you do-it-yourselfers, you need, may need to form a relationship. That does not mean it has to be an AUM-based giving 1% of your wealth, which for many of you, if you were given 1% of your assets, you're going to end up giving twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year. And that's just insane. I fully agree with that. But you may be able to find an advisory firm for an annual fee will be monitoring things for you and getting an understanding of your strategy. Now, they may be planners who may not believe in your approach to an annuity, but if you share with them, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I would like done, you can't legally oblige them to implement anything for you, but you can give them the knowledge that they need You could lay it out also in a very descriptive letter, not only to the advisor instructions, but to a family member who's going to step in and maybe assist you. I guess my point is, folks, at some point in time, you may need help. You can no longer do it yourself. And the best scenario on this is, first, when I myself retire, my firm is going to continue to manage my retirement. You think I'm going to, I, I'm not going to say who, but I jokingly will then name a couple of national firms. Uh, do you think I'm really going to go to those firms and say, handle my retirement? What are you, nuts? I'm going to keep a relationship, even though I do this for a living, I'm not going to try to make through my retirement on my own. That's just asinine. I'm going to need a firm looking out for me and understanding what my strategy is, what my approach is, a firm who can communicate that strategy to the agents who may be stepping in to help, whether that be my spouse, my child, or whoever. But one thing I do want to point out to both these listeners, and then I'll let Chris uh, give his thoughts on other things that people can do to this fear. I'm still hesitant to tell you to buy an annuity in your 70s because it's an irrevocable decision. At least the type of annuity we favor, an annuitized income annuity. There are annuities that exist for both these listeners that exist, that will give you an income guarantee, but also give you access to your money. They're not a deferred income annuity. They're a deferred annuity. There is a difference. You should remember this from all the annuity discussions. A deferred income annuity is an irrevocable decision that you are going to take income. You're just deferring when it begins. A single premium immediate annuity is the same thing, but it must begin paying within 13 months of opening it. A deferred income annuity can begin payments well into the future. But you generally have to tell the insurance company at what point in the future you want it. You got to choose the age. Some deferred income annuities are very restrictive and you have that age and that age only. Some will give you a window. 
within five years after or five years before. But then you have to understand that window. Some, you have to activate that window at the first opportunity, which is five years before, and tell them if you're going to take it somewhere within that next five-year period or not. You have to, In other words, you have to understand the nuances, folks. And if you're going to defer it, you have to tell them by a certain period of time before the payment date begins. So the point with the deferred income annuity, though, and it seems to be what's appealing to these listeners but concerns us, Chris, it's irrevocable. It's going to guarantee you the income. The decision has been made now. And if you are not in an ability to make that decision in the future or forget why it's been done. But here are my concerns. If you have that type of condition where you can't make a legal decision, you probably aren't living on your own anymore. You're going to be in assisted living or somewhere. Your situation's changed. Maybe living a long time is no longer an option. We always think it might be Alzheimer's or dementia. And yes, we can stay alive for 8, 10, 12 years with that horrendous disease. But maybe lifetime payments, though, are no longer necessary. Maybe just living off of withdrawals are necessary. Or you might have a long-term care insurance plan that's paying out. Or any number of things could be happening. And if you buy a deferred income annuity, deferred I, income annuity, you have no flexibility. A deferred annuity, remove the I, a deferred annuity with an income rider. That's an option you can add to a deferred annuity. Will allow you access to your dollars at any time. It's never annuitized. Unless you buy a GMIB, we spoke about this, Guaranteed Minimum Income Benefit. Those aren't very popular anymore. Most have been replaced with a Guaranteed Minimum Withdrawal Benefit. Where the insurance company says, hey, you can open this annuity with us. Here is an option for you. We guarantee you this income. And they'll give you a calculation on how to figure it out. And there's all different ways. And that guarantee is set in stone. You will get that minimum amount of income at that stated age. And it's all disclosed to you when you buy it. I don't want to get too deep in because there's a hundred different ways that they calculate it. But it is not an irreversible decision. The account balance is yours and the account is never annuitized. They're just going to limit how much money you can take out of the account, how much of your own money you can access. You would put money in, it hopefully will grow. It can grow on a fixed basis, an indexed basis, or a variable basis. We're not going to get into it on this show, but there's three different ways it can grow. And then you turn on the income guarantee. And if that income guarantee at the stated age, both of you listeners and everyone paying attention, if that income guarantee matches what you are projecting you are going to need, that could be a solution. But the downsides to this are a few. First, that income rider is expensive. you got to pay for it. And it's usually 75 to 125 basis points of your annuity value. These annuities are also complex, so they can be confusing to understand. They're easy to misunderstand how the income benefit works. And they're generally sold under a commission, or you can get commission-free fee-based ones, but then the advisor selling them to you is probably also going to take a quote-unquote management fee out of it as well, in addition to the rider fee, which could make a three-quarters to one-and-a-quarter basis point annuity all of a sudden cost two to two-and-a-half, not basis points, but 200 uh, to 250 basis points, or two to two-and-a-half percent of your annuity value every year. So the cost of that flexibility 
I have a hard time with. It's expensive, but it gives you flexibility. I feel personally you should address this with a solid relationship, eventually with a planning firm or a tax advisor or a trusted individual. I think you should lay out the strategy. I think you should tell the agent under your power of attorney who's going to be making legal decisions for you that this is what you you are trying to put together. You should make sure your power of attorney, we just did a show on power of attorney, so I'm thinking this, folks, that your power of attorney grants the power to buy an income annuity if necessary under the parameters specified. And you can specify right in that power of attorney when, how, and and where to use an income annuity. But if you have a condition, here's my issue, Chris, if they have a condition in the future that is keeping them from making a legal decision or even managing their finances, they might not have longevity anymore. And that's our whole point. Let the older you decide. If the older you can't make that decision, leave the information for someone else to help make that decision. And that way you're not locking yourself into an irrevocable deferred income annuity or a very expensive deferred annuity with an income rider and either an ongoing trail commission or an ongoing annual uh, fee to an investment advisor. It's expensive. What are your thoughts? Well, I think, you know, mitigating this, it's a real thing. Um, and you kind of mentioned towards the end of, of, of your explanation there of your thoughts, you mentioned what I one of the things I was thinking, which is leaving clear instructions both for yourself and whoever's helping you with it, it might be a family member or some an advisor have, you know, I have this set aside is what we call it, you know, reserve, whatever you want to call it. Uh, this set aside amount, and this is its intended purpose for us to reassess later on in life if I need additional secure income to fit into my situation. And and until it's decided for sure, I don't want this. I want to leave this money sitting here. And, and then when it's appropriate, um, turn it on. And if you're particularly worried about this issue, that might be an argument for considering it a little bit earlier than you otherwise would. That is one way to mitigate it, get it set up before the uh, decline takes place, but it's a balancing act since you're not going to probably know how fast your situation is going to deteriorate. Knowing when to pull that trigger um, can be tough. It's not an exact science. There's a bit of an art to this, but you know, I'm with Jim that I favor holding out and oftentimes holding out hope to what Jim was implying, which is maybe you don't need it for a variety of reasons. That's that's why you hold out. If, if you were knowing for sure that you wanted it, and actually, I'll go out so far as to say, if you've decided you absolutely want it, and and there's no question in your mind, there's no harm in doing it. You're you know go into it eyes wide open, fully understand the product that you're that you're uh, buying, and and do it if you're convinced that's what you want. I kind of joke with people sometimes. You know, what's the worst thing if you get there and you don't really need so much. Some of your secure income um, will go to fund other things as well. It's not like it's worthless when you get there. If you suddenly discover later in life that maybe the shortage you anticipated wasn't quite as large. So in hindsight, you wouldn't have gotten as big of an annuity. You just have, you know, a little extra coming in. There's a lot of people with more secure income than what we propose is minimally necessary to uh, protect their minimum dignity floor. That happens a lot. And it's not, nobody says, oh, dang, I hate this extra income I'm, I've got coming in. So keep that perspective as well. To address one of the concerns she had, which is buying an annuity and then buying one later when she's even older, um, she might want to look into an in, some type of inflation factor on the annuity she's considering. Then it's more of a set it and, and have it last a much longer period uh, rather than kind of that stepped approach, which is certainly a valid approach where you buy one and maybe has little or no inflation adjustment to it and it's good for a while, but then your expenses inflate and maybe you, then you need another one later. That's certainly a way to address inflation in your minimum dignity floor if you're taking our approach. But you can also buy inflation-adjusted, not inflation directly tied to inflation, but 
but uh, annuities with an inflation factor that's built in at a fixed amount that you'll the, that you know what that is, um, and and that would um, maybe fit your circumstances a little bit better and take off you know that that pressure of making a decision out later in your eighties, um, reduce that pressure uh, there. So that would be something else to think about. But I I favor detailed notes for your for yourself and others who are helping you and engaging with people don't try to just do it yourself forever there's a certain point where you know we we do a lot of things for ourselves we feed ourselves we dress ourselves we bathe ourselves we we drive ourselves to the grocery store we do that we maybe have done that the vast majority of our lives but there's a certain point where you might need help doing those things just because you've been a do-it-yourself financial planner doesn't mean that you are are burdened with having to do it yourself forever and and having someone come in and assist you especially someone who's been working with you for a while and they fully understand what this reserve is for and your intention and your attraction to secure income uh to cover your minimum dignity floor expenses someone who's going to monitor that and then uh, advise you and remind you as to hey remember we set this aside and it looks like this you know we're getting to the point where it probably makes sense to do it um, and, and, um, you know, help, help you down that path if that's where you wanted to go. Okay, good. I like that answer as well. So there's no straight answer for it, folks. And we do acknowledge the, the conflict between the two, if, if you will. But we have seen repeatedly things more often than not changes where people no longer need the lifetime annuity. And sadly, it's because of medical issues or, or they, mm-hmm. they pass away. Mm-hmm. And making that irrevocable decision early in retirement, we just don't want to do. We may talk a lot about annuities on the show because we're trying to teach you. We may use them in, in the practice, but we encourage our clients to wait before buying them. We truly don't. Put clients into many annuities. I'm talking income annuities now, multi-year guaranteed annuities, different type of annuity, different purpose. We have been using those a lot um, as bond substitutes, as, as we spoke about. But I'm talking income annuities. And it's mostly because we want our clients to wait until they truly need it. And the deferred annuities with the income benefits, I own one. I've told everybody that many, many times on this show, but I bought mine in 08 when the income benefits were very, very beneficial or very generous. They're not as generous anymore. And the cost of them have maintained, if not gone higher than they were in 08. So you have higher cost, less benefit, and they're just not appealing to me anymore. I'd rather you keep the money aside, but you bring up some very good points. All right, I don't want to beat that horse anymore. We got a couple of quickies now, just like we did last time. We went through a bunch of quick ones. So uh, this guy, I had to Google his hint because I had no idea, but he said, I'm from the Keystone State, so that's easy. So my hint is, why are we the Keystone State? I didn't even know what the Keystone State was. I had to Google it, and I also Googled, why is it called the Keystone State? Do you want to take a stab real quickly? I've heard of it, but I can't place it. Um, neither, neither could I. I heard of it as well. The Keystone State is Pennsylvania. Mm. And then I had to Google, why is Pennsylvania called the Keystone State? And Pennsylvania claims because of the critical role that they played in the founding of this country. Pennsylvania is a keystone that formed or helped form the union and hold it together. So that's just like a keystone supports something really strong. Pennsylvania's claim to fame, Keystone State. All right. That was the the hint. Recently, he said he was listening to old shows. And you mentioned, uh, I believe you, he meant me, but I'm not sure. You mentioned about not converting IRA funds to a Roth that you may use later for long-term care expenses. Not Long-term care insurance, long-term care expenses. He wanted to make that clear, and I'm glad he did, because that's what we were talking about. But you never mentioned your rationale. Was that because at the point in your life where you may need long-term care, you will have significant itemized deductions 
and maybe even lower income combined with those high medical expenses? I don't quite get what you were saying and if there would be any other reason. Thanks, George. Do you want to address that? Because I think he answered his own question. Yeah, he nailed it. That's exactly why you should uh, consider that, is that uh, if he reached the point where you're experiencing long-term care needs, you're going to have hefty medical expenses, uh, which uh, will at that point oftentimes exceed the 7.5%, which is currently a uh, hurdle that you have to get over before the itemization becomes a benefit to you. And that's what uh, Jim is talking about there. Can you perfectly predict the degree to which that's going to happen? No, but it's just a general way of thinking about it and to consider it that there are times when money can flow out of IRAs, which is always comes out as ordinary income, that when used by a, you know, given to a charity, uh, either during life as QCDs or after life uh, as part of your uh, beneficiary designation or uh, come out at a time when you had a favorable income tax situation where uh, not having them in a Roth might end up being beneficial. Yep, that's, that's why. We also don't recommend, folks, you convert assets you're going to leave to a charity. That's what I just said. I wasn't paying attention. I was reading yeah, the next email. I can tell. <laughs> but also my short-term memory. See, folks? Even right there. Classic example. Short-term memory, totally gone. Didn't remember Chris even said that. Wow, I totally blocked out what you were saying as I was reading the next email. It's all good. Okay. Thank you. Now I look like a fool. All right. And we won't edit this. This is the whole thing. Live recorded radio. Okay. Another quickie, and then we'll wrap this up. Hi, Jim. No hint for this one. Hi, Jim. I just finished listening to the Questions About Secure Act EDU podcast number 2322. And I'm confused. (laughs) Join the club. We're all confused. In the part about 529 to Roth discussion, you discussed contributing to the 529 account for an individual who may be above the income limit later for Roth contributions. However, you didn't mention the backdoor contribution as a seemingly easier way for that individual to get around the income limit. Am I correct in thinking that the strategy you described would only make sense for an individual who might have a pre-tax IRA balance and would therefore be subject to the pro rata rule and nullify the backdoor Roth? Or am I missing some other factor that would make a 529 to Roth conversion more advantageous? I don't think you're missing it, folks, and uh, listener rather. And folks, go back and listen to that show. It would have came out towards the end of May where we did a whole summary of the SECURE Act. It's one of the last ones. I think there was like three or four pots, so it was probably pot four. Uh, or three. Well, it was. That, he said the episode, episode. Oh, 20, can you th- search? Year twenty-three, episode twenty-two. Can you search by that? Okay, then yeah. I don't know because I don't listen to our podcast. I hate, I hate listening to it. Okay, twenty-three, twenty-two is is where it it plays, and it's the whole idea that you can take a five twenty-nine account and use up to to as of twenty twenty-three, and this takes effect beginning in twenty twenty-four. You can put 35000 of the 529 account into a Roth as a tax-free conversion. There's a lot of nuances to it, and we're not going to get into it on this. Listen to the podcast. But he's asking, why would someone need to jump through all these hoops? Wouldn't it be easier for someone who's not going to be able to contribute to a Roth to do a backdoor? Yes, it could very well be a way of doing it. We won't dispute that. But you did hit the nail on the head. Maybe that person is going to have an IRA and not be able to do the back door. Maybe they get rid of the back door. Remember, there was a push in the last tax bill that didn't make it. They almost did it. Yeah. Saying the only money that can be converted from an IRA to a Roth IRA is pre-tax, not post-tax dollars. That provision may someday pass 
because the whole idea of conversions is for them to get money now. It's not benefiting them if it's if you're converting after tax dollars in their line of thinking. It's not benefiting them. So they want to close that loophole. There's been a lot of consternation about the backdoor Roth. A lot of people don't like it and they want to get rid of it. It wouldn't surprise me if someday that goes. The ability to move 529 to Roth is etched in law. It's an actual part of the SECURE Act. The backdoor Roth strategy was never written into law. It's just taking, it truly is a loophole. It's taking advantage of saying, hey, I make too much money to put money in a Roth. And that's what the the Congress wanted to stop. People who earned more than a set amount of money, which isn't that much, but people who earn more than that, not to put any in. That's what they don't want you to do for one reason or another. But through a loophole of being able to contribute any dollars to a traditional IRA, it's your ability to deduct them that's lost, but anybody can put money into an IRA. And the fact that they got rid of the $100,000 of earnings before someone was barred from converting, that used to be the rule if you earned more than 100000 even as a couple 100000 It was the same for a single or a married person. More than 100000 you couldn't convert. That pretty much ruled out everyone from converting. They got rid of that in 2010. So you had two now manners of being able to do a back door. And for years, many people were saying, don't do it. The step doctrine rule is going to come into play. The IRS isn't going to allow this. And then there were many other people, myself included, who said, no, this is perfectly legit. We're following two perfectly legit strategies and rules. I do think someday they're going to close that loophole and say, The only money in an IRA that can be converted to a Roth IRA is pre-tax, and that will effectively kill the uh, backdoor. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. And there's, I think the having the 529 as a intentional mechanism for future Roth funding is a little questionable in its value at this point. Uh, this is just, you know, as part of the secure act, it opens up this door to this possibility. So I think advisors like ourselves and others are kind of feeling our way through as the further IRS clarification on this comes out and looking for opportunities. Cause that's the whole deal is what playing within the rules. Where are the opportunities to marginally improve my financial situation? That's what a, a financial advisor, financial planner is there for is to help you uh, kind of figure out these things. So we're we're looking for opportunities here. I'm not super sold on this just because of the the restrictions and the timeline, and you know having to be a ben- named beneficiary for 15 years on the account and all things like this are just uh, well, no, 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 no. The, the, the that we this, so. there's no clarity on the named beneficiary part. The account yeah. has to be 15 years old. So my suggestion was just open one and get the 15-year clock started. The contributions, be, the dollars in the 529 being converted to the Roth have to be in there for at least five years. So my suggestion was you should just get, especially if you're going to be a high wage earner, <clears throat> get one open or a parent, get one open for your kid now. And then you can name them as beneficiary. The point was get the 10 years started and then beginning in the 11th year 11 through 15 you make contributions to the 529 if you're not allowed to make money of uh, make contributions into the Roth yeah and I'm, and I'm then, worried they're going to interpret it as somehow that beneficiary because I think they're going to discover the intent of Congress was to have legacy 529s that people have been funding for a long time to encourage that behavior for college funding, but then give people an outlet. You know, if it doesn't work out, then you can always switch it over to their Roth. I, I'm still a little worried about their interpretation of the, that 15-year period, how they're going to apply that. True. And again, my point was, and I even mentioned the Colorado 529. that can be open for 25 bucks. Yeah. Just open a 529 and get the clock started. Right. And see how this plays out over the next 10 years. By then, there should be some clear... We would hope in 10 years they have final rules on Secure 1 and Secure 2. It just is a strategy. If you wait 15 years to start, 
and it has to be open for 15 years, it's too late. Yeah. My thought was just get it started. But also before we wrap up, I began that whole series by saying Ed Slot began this particular 529 to Roth by stating he and his team have looked at this and there's no way to game this. There's no great thing happening here. He just explained it the way I explained it to you. And it just makes me think, I don't know in the future if they're going to close the back door. For $25 or $100 or $500, whatever the 529 you're looking at, to just open one and get the clock started, especially if you have younger children in their 20s and college who you just know are going to eventually be earning more than the limits. Get one open. Get them named as beneficiary. Open one for each child. Don't open one and name all four as beneficiaries. I want one for each kid. Easy to track. And if they never use it, it can go to your grandkids, mm-hmm. their future kids. Right. But it just gets that clock started. And then 10 years from now, that's the key. Because the money being moved has to be in for at least five years. So beginning in year 11, if you're going to do the strategy, stop putting the Roth contributions in. Figure this out in 11 years. Yeah. Just get the Roth open now for 25 bucks to a couple of hundred bucks. The 529. That's what I was trying get to. the 529 open now. Yeah. Oh, what did I say? You said Roth. Oh, see, I was testing you. Very yeah, good. good, Chris. You were picking up on that. You were paying attention. See, I listened to most of your responses most of the time. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, that's a good point to wrap up. And uh, thanks, everybody, again, for listening. And if you've got questions uh, you'd like us to consider answering on the show, send them in directly to Jim's email. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email address. Put in the subject line that it's a question for the show. And uh, with any luck, you'll hear your question read right here on the Retirement and IRA show. So, um, Jim, you have a nice, I know you're itching to get out to the garden this afternoon, have a nice time out there in the sweltering heat, doing whatever you're going to do. I need to water. That's what you do in sweltering heat. Yeah, and uh, you and I will talk again tomorrow. All right, talk to you guys later. Everyone else, we'll be back next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jimhelps.com or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 